The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Hugh Taylor for one of our coffee talks. In this section of our podcast, we invite some of the true legends of our field to hear firsthand their personal stories, their thoughts on how reproductive medicine has changed, and their views on what the future may hold. And we couldn't be happier that Dr. Hugh Taylor is, is here with us today. Dr. Taylor is the Chair of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale University, where he is also a Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. He is also the current President of ASRM. He completed his graduate studies at Yale and Medical School at the University of Connecticut, after which he returned to Yale, where he completed his OBGYN residency and his REI fellowship as well as a fellowship in molecular biology as well. Dr. Taylor has been the principal investigator on 15 NIH grants, participated in numerous other NIH-funded projects, and he has extensively researched uterine development, the regulation of gene expression by sex steroids, endocrine disruption, and stem cells in reproductive medicine. He's also considered among the world's leading experts in endometriosis. Dr. Taylor has received several awards for his research, including the SGI Distinguished Scientist Award and the EV Foundation International Award for Best Research in Reproductive Medicine. He has mentored innumerable trainees and received the SGI Award for this training, not once or twice, but 12 times. He is the past editor-in-chief of the journal Reproductive Sciences, and he also serves on the editorial board and as a reviewer for numerous other journals. He was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2016, and he is past president of the Society of Reproductive Investigation, as well as the current president of ASRM. Today, he's having coffee with Dr. Emre Selly, our chief scientific director here at EVRMA, who actually knows him quite well since they have been together at Yale for more than 25 years now, I think. Let's, let's listen in. Uh, thank you so much, Hugh, for joining us today. We know you have a very, very busy schedule. Well, thank you. My pleasure to join you. And thank you, Andres, for that very kind, generous introduction. So you finished your REI fellowship, I think, in 1998. Yes. And uh, since then, you have had one of the most successful careers one can think of. Uh, how did it all start? Why did you choose reproductive medicine? Oh, reproductive medicine has always been fascinating to me. It's about life ex itself. It's, it's where life starts, all of development from a single cell to the multifaceted organism that is a person. Um, so much happens that shapes the rest of our life. So much is uh, determined during that time period. Uh, the concept of uh, genetics, developmental programming are all encompassed in reproductive medicine. It defines who we are, it's the driving force in all of evolution that shaped 
that shaped the natural world as we know it. It's about the ability to reproduce and genetic, uh, genetic variation in the species, uh, the ability you know, to select uh, through natural selection, the strongest organism. It's driven evolution. It drives, it drives so much of who we are as, a, as an individual. I can think of nothing more fascinating than reproductive medicine and biology. Well, that's a really, really uh, good endorsement of our field, and I couldn't agree more, actually. I really think it's the most fascinating field also. Uh, we, we really would like the listeners to picture you before you were known. Uh, when you first started, what was your first position after finishing your training? How did you spend your days then? So after I, I, after I finished my residency, I spent my time in scientific training where I did a fellowship in, in scientific research, and then went back to the fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, the clinical fellowship. Um, so extensive training. I think uh, that's important uh, to point out that the uh, establishment of a successful career really comes with learning as much as you can up front to have the right background to succeed. Um, but then once I became an assistant professor, uh, I divided my time between clinical care. I've always been passionate about taking care of patients. I've always loved surgery and IVF. I love the procedures, but also um, uh, was deeply involved in research at the time uh, running a lab. So I divide my time between clinical care and the laboratory. In those days, my laboratory was right down the hall from our clinic. So I'd find myself running back and forth. There wasn't a day that I wasn't in both places. Uh, every day I could keep on top of everything. It's a little more difficult now as academic medicine's gotten larger as practices uh, uh, as ours did move off site. It's a little harder to have that same continuity. Uh, but the early days were like that. It was a bench to bedside um, translation continuously every day in the clinic and the laboratory. Yes, I, I can attest to that. And yes, you, you used to be there and you're still very close with your lab lab uh, when you're in your office, which is, which is also true. So you've devoted much of your life's work to understanding endometrial development and endometriosis. How did that evolve? How did you choose that over, let's say, the oocyte? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's wonderful to be in an apartment where you have people study both the oocyte and the uterus. So that's one of the values of being in a great academic institution to have all those expertise. So I could work right down the hall from your lab and, and uh, still learn about it all. Uh, no, I um, actually started my life um, before uh, I decided to uh, go into reproductive biology, before I um, fully appreciated all the things I described to you when we opened here, I think I might do cancer research. Um, but I was always fascinated in understanding the basic biology that underlie uh, cell differentiation um, that controlled gene transcription. So I, I started off doing, a, a, a thinking I'd do cancer biology, but ended up starting in developmental biology. Uh, and then focused as a reproductive biologist on development of the reproductive tract, the uterus. Um, from there, um, uh, naturally branched out to look at endometrium, endometrial receptivity, uh, obviously uh, closely linked to what I was doing clinically um, and 
from there endometriosis. So endometriosis being uh, abnormal development and trafficking of cells out of the uterus that are supposed to be in the endometrial cavity. It was a natural evolution for me, uh, one to the other. Um, uh, in my earlier days, I was very interested in basic developmental biology, but I quickly saw the basic science merging with the clinical interests with my uh, involvement in patient care with what I thought were the needs of my patients, opportunities for um, helping advance the field where I didn't think our understanding or care was sufficient. Um, endometrial receptivity is still not fully understood, but at the time it really was the black box of, uh, of uh, infertility treatment. Uh, you'd, we'd put embryos in and uh, not know why they might implant or not, uh, what might be uh, allowing the endometrium to be receptive. So fascinating for me and always a mystery as I uh, clinically was involved in IVF, uh, but also saw numerous endometriosis patients. And uh, there are a lot of problems with uh, endometriosis care, identifying them, they go 10 years without being recognized often initially on average, uh, the treatments, uh, weren't always effective or had uh, significant side effects. Uh, and, and the idea of how this disease spreads throughout the body was, was not well understood. So I, I thought it was another important um, area for investigation where it could really help patients by better understanding basic pathophysiology, that translating um, to the patients that I was seeing basic science findings was always part of what drove me um, at each step along the way. But this was a very nice leeway to my next question, actually. Uh, I, I really want to know, after spending so many years studying endo endometriosis, what is your current understanding of this enigmatic disease? I mean, I, I, have, I have seen, I have observed your thinking evolve uh, through the years, uh, which is what you hope will happen after uh, studying a disease. So, so where, where are you right now? <laughs> well... You know, I think like everyone else, when I started in this field, I thought endometriosis was a little bit of retrograde menstruation, and we didn't understand why it developed in some women and why it didn't in others. Uh, but I think it's much more complex than that. Endometriosis truly is a whole body systemic disease. Uh, what we're finding out now through some of our basic work is that there are cell trafficking, you know, the retrograde menstruation is really just part of the story. Cells travel extensively throughout the body, uh, not just in endometriosis, but particularly in endometriosis. We've found that stem cells contribute to endometriosis, that you can detect some of these cells in the circulation. This is not just retrograde menstruation. There's much more extensive cell trafficking. We found all sorts of alterations throughout the whole body in endometriosis. One of our uh, more recent areas of investigation have been looking at microRNAs, these small non-coding RNAs uh, that are altered in women with endometriosis that we can find in the circulation. And these travel to distant sites all over the body uh, and can impact um, many things that we never imagined might be associated with endometriosis. They, change, they affect white blood cells and cause inflammation. And we know there's inflammation associated with endometriosis. This explains some of that mechanism. Uh, endometriosis has you know, diffuse um, inflammation that has a profound impact. Um, you know, we've heard for many years that women with endometriosis uh, are thinner 
than women with without um, endometriosis. They have a lower BMI, a lower body fat, uh, and it had often been described as a risk factor for endometriosis. But our animal studies show that it's quite the opposite, that endometriosis actually causes um, weight loss. In our mouse models, we can create endometriosis. The mice lose weight. There is a metabolic phenotype associated with endometriosis. Again, it's not just a few dots in the pelvis. It's not just what we normally think of, chase, and operate on. It, it is, uh, there's also this metabolic phenotype. We looked in the liver. There are enzyme differences in the liver of animals where we create endometriosis uh, that would tend to change metabolism in a way that would make someone lose weight. There are changes in adipocytes and uh, how they behave. So there are differences in the fat, not only in their metabolism, but in their stem cell content uh, that are seen after we create endometriosis. So there are clearly uh, multiple effects, inflammation, um, metabolic differences. We've also looked in the brains of animals when we create endometriosis, and they're different. Uh, patients with endometriosis um, uh, have a higher incidence of depression and anxiety, and it is not just a patient uh, that may be considered by some a difficult patient. I always get frustrated when I hear patients uh, called by some healthcare providers as a difficult patient. Uh, depression, anxiety, changes in the brain, changes in how these women behave are part of the disease. Pain sensitization is part of the disease. By causing endometriosis in an animal, we make them behave differently. We've looked at their brains, their changes in gene expression, their changes in electrophysiology. There are changes in their behavior. They are more anxious. They are more depressed. They are more sensitive to painful stimuli. It's, it's a manifestation of the disease the endometriosis causes rather than it being the other way around that sensitive people may complain about uh, pelvic pain. They are sensitized to pain and they have differences in their behavior. So I view endometriosis now as you know, the, the, the dots of the pelvis, the few blue dots we see at laparoscopy as the tip of the iceberg. This is a systemic whole body disease that affects inflammation, affects the brain, it affects the uterus with the infertility, implantation defects, um, uh, and it affects metabolism. This is a very, I think it's a very novel view. And, uh, and it's kind of, I guess, bidirectional perception, like you were saying that maybe some things that are inherent to a, a woman's physiology or pathophysiology help those blue dots to appear and, and then blue dots increase those issues or it is only one way? No, it's both. I think there clearly is a genetic predisposition. We don't really, there's no single gene, but it's, it's probably multifactorial um, because we know there is a propensity in some families to develop endometriosis. So certainly some people are predisposed. Um, I believe inflammation probably encourages the development of, of endometriosis, which then exacerbates inflammation. Um, and there's environmental impacts as well, certain uh, uh, environmental agents, and especially at critical developmental windows can make someone predisposed to develop endometriosis. So it's multifactorial. Uh, the, some of these things contribute to the development of endometriosis and endometriosis changes our physiology and makes us different. So thank you. So based on these, uh, these observations about endometriosis, where do you see the diagnostic and therapeutics of endometriosis go in the next decade? What, would, what do you think will come? Well, I think Often, as we recognize these you know, multifactorial symptoms in endometriosis, 
uh, we won't be as distracted by them. I think too many times people with endometriosis are seen by various specialists outside of gynecology because of all these systemic manifestations. Uh, they are likely to have uh, a gastrointestinal workup, maybe a colonoscopy. Uh, they may have a, a cystoscopy to look for interstitial cystitis. They may see a psychiatrist uh, before they have their endometriosis treated. I think as we recognize these are all manifestations of endometriosis, we'll, we'll get a better appreciation for what this disease is, recognize it sooner, diagnose it sooner, get these people treated before the, uh, some of the damage is done. The earlier we can treat probably uh, the less long-term sequela of the disease. So recognizing these multiple manifestations, uh, but not getting sidetracked by them, to not think that means something else is going on. If you have cyclic pelvic pain that progresses over time, you probably have endometriosis. If you have some of these other things that accompany it, it's probably a, additional manifestations of endometriosis rather than other diseases that need to be evaluated separately. I think as we focus on the central core symptoms of endometriosis and not be distracted by some of these other manifestations, thinking somebody has something else wrong with them, we'll be able to diagnose the disease sooner, get people into treatment sooner. I think, so I think clinical diagnosis through better understanding, better recognition of the disease is going to go a long way to help these women. But I think we'll also have non-invasive diagnostic tests uh, that will help that laparoscopy has been our gold standard and that's been a real barrier to getting a diagnosis. We've been developing a uh, microRNA based uh, test uh, on um, uh, serum uh, that we think may be uh, a good test to diagnose endometriosis that's uh, being developed for commercial use by a company that uh, licensed it from our university. Uh, but there are other tests in the works that may very well uh, be able to diagnose endometriosis without doing something as invasive as a laparoscopy. Um, so I think uh, we'll, we'll get better at diagnosing this disease. We'll be able to do it sooner, faster, and with more precision. I think treatments also uh, will change. Early recognition will probably mean we can use milder treatments that may be more effective if the disease hasn't progressed so far. I think birth control pills will still continue to be the first line therapy. Um, and we've developed better drugs as second line therapy. There was a time when uh, GnRH agonists were the main line second or main second line therapy. And these are injectable drugs that uh, have fairly significant side effects, never were popular with patients. That's part of what led to the huge barrier to diagnosing endometriosis. If you have to use a uh, drug with a lot of side effects, that's going to be unpleasant. Uh, the, you better make sure you have your diagnosis correct and why I think laparoscopy became the gold standard for diagnosing it. But as we get better drugs that are easier to take, uh, I think we will see uh, clinical diagnosis becoming much more acceptable. I think patients uh, will get great uh, relief from endometriosis with drugs that are more patient-friendly, easier to use. The GnRH antagonists are clearly um, the first step here uh, where we can lower estrogen levels without suppressing them all the way to zero, uh, where we can uh, partially suppress estrogen enough to control endometriosis uh, without um, uh, putting someone in a menopause-like state, um, and where we can titrate the dose to, 
give just as much as someone needs to control their endometriosis. But importantly, these are oral agents that work quickly and are reversed quickly for the patient who may want to keep fertility options open. So I think that's a great step. I think the future, though, will be based on a better understanding of the basic pathophysiology of the disease uh, will be targeted therapy that is not just um, switching someone's reproductive hormones, not giving high-dose progestins, not eliminating estrogen, which has so many myriad effects on the body. I think we'll start to get to the point where we understand some of the specific defects in endometriosis, target those defects, um, and uh, uh, rely less on hormonal treatments. Right now, we have no treatment that we can use in the setting of infertility. Uh, women who uh, want to become pregnant, uh, other than surgical therapy, there's no medical therapy we can use. All of them are uh, either prevent fertility or inappropriate to use in the uh, woman uh, trying to conceive. So I think as we understand the molecular biology of endometriosis better, we'll be able to specifically target the defects there without suppressing sex steroid hormones, without getting in the way of fertility, um, and maybe even come up with an endometriosis therapy that improves fertility. And we're working on that. We've got several agents that we've published that have worked in, in animal models, including altering some of these uh, microRNAs that we've found uh, that are uh, abnormally expressed in endometriosis. Uh, those type of therapies, I think, uh, will have benefits in treating the endometriosis, but probably also in some of these other systemic uh, aspects of endometriosis that are underappreciated and underrecognized right now. The pain is often the most demanding uh, symptom that patients are suffering with the, with the pain and want that fixed. But if we could come up with treatments that also helped with the depression, uh, improved metabolism, uh, reduced inflammation, we may be able to prevent some of the other complications of endometriosis. Again, it may not be the primary chief complaint of the patient. It's the pain she wants to get rid of, but are also very important as well. And once we control the pain, these other uh, secondary uh, issues um, need to be controlled as well. That's wonderful. Moving on to uh, an, another important subject. Okay. Uh, an important part of being as successful as you are is to pass it on, uh, sharing your knowledge and mentoring the next generation. I think you are one of the leaders in our field that focuses on this the most, and you really lead by example on this regard. I'm sure Andres can attest to this. Uh, I think he spent some time in your lab, right, Andres? Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely can. Um, Dr. Taylor's lab was pretty much my port of entry to the U.S. from a research point of view. Um, I've learned so, so much from, from you, Dr. Taylor, and I always find it amazing. It's how someone in that high of a position can can find so much time to to devote to your to your mentees or in my case to an absolutely clueless postdoc you just had there. Um, you did some pretty good work, so I don't know about clueless. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean you you really do devote a, a lot of time to your to your. I mean, we had a Halloween party. You came in costume. That's you know, not, not something many chair chair people do. Yeah, I mean, I I can attest to that too. Actually, uh, Hugh does stay after hours, and and anyone who wants time one on one can have that. Uh, but I want I wonder how you do all this. How you balance all the hats that you wear professionally, the societies, the clinical work surgery, research, teaching, mentoring. And I want to open a parenthesis there. 
because I want to document this in, in this podcast. I, I've known you for 25 years. I've never seen you raise your voice or be unpolite or talk ever negatively about anyone who worked with you, uh, any of your mentees. So how do you do all these and stay so calm? And, uh, and you've been calm and kind when it wasn't, um, how should I say, fashionable to be calm and kind. Now, now it's, it is, but 15 years ago, it was cool to be yelling and screaming and you never did. So how, how do you do all these things and, you know, not get a little, I guess, anxious or upset? It's easy. I, I love what I do and I, I appreciate people who love it as well. And I, I think it just, it needs to be fun. Medicine's fun. It's, it's rewarding. Science is fun. Uh, investigation's fun. To know that you can make a difference in the world, give something back, improve care, improve people's lives. Uh, to me, that's just so rewarding. I wake up every day and just am thankful that I'm doing what I'm doing and want to share that with others and truly enjoy it. it always keeps me happy. And also, I assume people must wonder if you have any free time and how you spend it. I know you're fond of your dogs. Uh, which, yes. who, uh, and they happen to be quite large. What breed are they, by the way? Like, I know there are some mixtures that are, are, are they unique to you or? Uh... We've had four, four uh, dogs simultaneously. We only have three right now. Unfortunately, we lost one a while ago, but we have uh, all large dogs. Every one of our dogs over a hundred pounds. Um, our largest dog who we lost uh, not too long ago is a half Great Dane, half St. Bernard, about 200 pounds but the kindest, gentlest dog you'd ever meet. The most docile and very uh, loving, beautiful dog. So I love my dogs. I love all wildlife. My other passion in life uh, outside of science and medicine is the outdoors and wildlife. My favorite vacation spot is the Rocky Mountains. Uh, try and uh, get out there and hike in the summer. Um, uh, very, uh, very interested in, in wildlife and environmental issues. I also serve on the board of an organization called Environment and Human Health, uh, where we uh, uh, advocate for uh, environmental change, um, in particular, that will uh, also impact human health. Well, these are these are very cons consistent life in itself. <laughs> you do environmental research. You, you you care about the environment. You and you enjoy environment. Um, talking about free time, uh, I, I sometimes talk, think about this and tell some other people. We used to pe pass each other by in the hallway late at night, 20 years ago. And I think when I'm there, we still do. But how do you think the work-life balance has evolved and will continue to evolve? And it should evolve. How would it affect the concept of physician scientists, you think? Because I always feel like maybe it requires a little more time a little more sacrifice to become a physician scientist? Well, it does, but I think there are many levels you can become involved in anything. If you want to, uh, you know, uh, become involved as a physician scientist without necessarily running a huge uh, operation, busy clinician and large lab, you can do that. You can get involved with somebody else who's running their lab and be an important key person and involved in investigation. So I think this can be whatever you want to make of it. You can uh, spend as little or as much time as you want. I spend a lot of time doing it because I love it. 
Um, and to me, it's never a, a question of competition. I do what I like, and this happens to be what I like. It was never a struggle or a tough decision. But I think there's room to engage as, as much or as little as you like. And with the right people around you in the right environment, the right collaborators, uh, you can um, uh, still make a tremendous impact uh, on health and medicine uh, with a smaller investment of time than it might have been uh, considered the norm a generation ago. I think we can all, we can all get involved at uh, whatever level and whatever time commitment we think is appropriate uh, and the right balance in our own lives. Thank you for this answer and thank you for making this statement because uh, I really feel being a physician in science is a really happy way of existing. And I, I hope that more people will consider that as a pathway because, you know, some other things may seem easy, but in the long term, uh, it may become less exciting or, or, uh, or happy. Uh, moving on to a different questions, you, are you, you were the uh, president of uh, SRI. It used to be SGI, then SRI, Society for Reproductive Investigation, a very successful one, I might say. Uh, balancing the budget, having a successful meeting in Montreal, and now you are the president of ASRM. So what are the highs and lows of being a president? What is the hardest part? And what are the perks of it? Like, what, what do you enjoy about it? Oh, well, I, I must say that being president of ASRM this year is a little different. Normally, there's a lot of travel around. Normally, part of the excitement is you know, uh, traveling to all the international meetings and uh, meeting your counterparts uh, at the other uh, international societies. So I missed that this year. That's probably been the low for me is not being able to get out there and travel because of COVID. Uh, but uh, it's a tremendous honor and it's uh, really wonderful to be able to help uh, shape the organization uh, to move in a direction that you think would be beneficial. We've done a lot with ASRM. Uh, you know, it's not just the presidential year, but serving on the presidential chain, you serve as vice president, president-elect and president, immediate past president, and then past president. It's a five-year term, essentially. Um, as you know, we've founded a research institute at ASRM that's supporting um, research and uh, especially some of the things that the NIH doesn't fund. Uh, we've started three new journals, uh, uh, the fertility and sterility branded uh, uh, offshoot journals. Uh, we've just uh, now created the Center for Policy and Leadership, an advocacy organization, the voice of reproductive medicine, something that we have always done a little bit of in ASRM, but this is a real major commitment, stepping up our, our uh, uh, commitment to advocacy and leadership um, policy development in this area. Uh, it's, it's something that is crucially important to be a voice for reproductive medicine and something that there really isn't a think tank like this anywhere else. So I think these are, are, are really exciting things that we've been able to do in the ASRM and, and, and that's what makes it a pleasure. Again, you're really contributing, giving something back to the field uh, to, to make the field better uh, for all of us. It's a, it's a tremendous honor and, and great privilege to be able to be part of that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for all, everything that you're doing. And I, I really think both societies SR and ASRM definitely play very distinct roles and have significant contribution. Uh, we generally ask our guests uh, to tell us what they think uh, has been the two or three most important developments in reproductive medicine. What are your favorites? 
Well, of, of course, I'm a little biased towards things that I'm particularly interested in. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear, bi this is a biased forum. Okay. <laughs> I think stem cell biology is uh, really very important. I think we'll learn to uh, use stem cells for regenerative medicine, and uh, but also I th at some point use stem cells to create gametes. Uh, we may be able to extend the biological clock that way. We may be able to create gametes when we might not have been able to otherwise uh, to create large numbers of embryos. Uh, that's a bit uh, far off, but I think uh, stem cell biology is going to have a tremendous impact on so many aspects of medicine. But I can imagine a day when we have huge numbers of gametes uh, that we can then uh, uh, select uh, optimal um, uh, embryos uh, for uh, transfer. We're way off from that. But I, I think that that's uh, something we may see in the future. That'll allow large-scale screening. Um, it'll allow things like gene editing to be possible. Uh, those are you know, things that have uh, a lot of ethical considerations that we need to pay attention to, and we know we're ready to start doing them. But I think that's going to be a major force in the future of reproductive medicine. I think genetic testing is really uh, what I would say is implemented right now that's had a tremendous impact. I think we'll see that expand to testing uh, for much more than we do now um, and uh, being able to screen embryos more carefully for all sorts of different characteristics, diseases, traits uh, will become very important. Uh, again, a lot of ethical concerns. Uh, we have to really question what should we, what can we, and what should we test for. Um, and I don't think we should test for everything. Uh, but there are a lot of things we probably can test for. As we understand more and more about the human genome with the huge growth in our ability to sequence the whole genome, the understanding of the genetic etiology disease, we will find more and more genes that are favorable or unfavorable. And I can imagine a day when we uh, are doing more IVF to look for the health of the next generation to screen the embryos than for infertility itself. Uh, so I think the genomics um, and uh, the ability to biopsy and, uh, and, and test an embryo, PGT, is, is one of the most exciting things that, that uh, uh, is on the horizon right now. Thank you so much, Hugh. This has been such a great pleasure and we feel privileged to have you on. Uh, and again, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.